Hello, my name is Radzi and welcome to the moments that made me in association with the University of Hull. Now in this series, we discover the three moments that have ultimately defined the lives of some of Britain's finest Olympic athletes. We've already heard from the likes of Pete Reed, Ed Clancy, Becky Adlington, Becky Nelly Downey, Maddie Hinch and Latalo Mohammed. But in our seventh episode, we are joined by a supermum, a super athlete, a dancer, a broadcaster, and the 2000 Sydney Olympic heptathlon champion, Denise Lewis. By the way, this was recorded back in June when lockdown was still very much in full swing. Now though, it is time to hear from the hero herself, one of the absolute greats, I give you Denise Lewis. European champion, a Commonwealth Games champion, an Olympic champion in the heptathlon, the lady who refuses to age, a walking cocoa butter commercial, Denise Lewis. How are you? I'm feeling very smooth and smug at having such a fantastic <laughs> introduction, Ragsy. I'm really good, I have to say, um, in light of the situation. It's been a bit of a roller coaster emotionally, um, but I'm good. As I sit here today, I'm feeling good and energised. I'm properly excited to chat to you about your life. I think it's safe to say you know your life better than anyone else. Would that be fair to say? Possibly. I'm, there's things that I think sometimes your mind can be very selective about the things you remember clearly. Okay, we're going to find out how well you drive the Denise Lewis car of life with five questions, the test for Denise Lewis. Are you ready? Limited. <laughs> Let's go. Question number one. Your first international was in 1991, the European Juniors in Greece. Do you remember where you finished? Yes, I do. I finished fifth. Yes. I finished fifth after, really funny, um, obviously I was ranked number two as a junior, uh, you know, in the British team. Um, and Yinka uh, Odoo, who was probably the GB number one at the time, was almost favourite for a medal. And Coming into the penultimate event, she was lying in a really strong position. And I just don't know, I was inspired. I thought maybe I'm helping her, I'm helping myself. And I went out that 800. And you know my relationship with that 800 meters, Razzie. Um, I had a moment of feeling fleet-footed and I went off like a bat out of hell. You know, I ran the first 400 in a ridiculous time. I had no business been somewhere around I think it was like 60 seconds and wow <laughs> and so I not only um probably ruined Jinka's chances because she came went off hard with me um and then failed to finish and I literally was like running through treacle in the last 150 meters I was begging for the line to come towards me but yeah finished fifth um not really on the radar you know, internationally as a junior, but had the mindset of, I want more. And just very quickly, touching on that, we're probably going to hear lots of names of people that the audience may not necessarily know, maybe because they didn't quite transition as well as you did. What is it about you that meant that you went from fifth as a European junior to, to Olympic champion, whereas Yinka possibly didn't have that dream story? Again, I don't know, self-belief. I mean, there is a lot of luck, again, in terms of what body you have, whether it's injury prone or not. Um, and I know I've had my fair share of injuries, but really it was just in my mind, I so, so wanted it. It was a childhood dream to be an Olympian. 
you know, some people say they came to it late, but I was really young when that, that feeling was ignited in me about wanting to be, to be there in the moment. And for me, it was just this dogged pursuit of um, my personal best. Love that. Question number two, Denise, one of one so far. What's your 200 meter PB in the heptathlon? Where and when? Where it might be got sits, or is it Toulon's? It's in a heptathlon. It is got sits. It's got sits. Okay. Um, then it might be 2410 or 240 something. Do you remember when? 97. Oh, yes. delivered, delivered, yes. <laughs> Taylor, putting it out the bag. Woo. Okay, th- you got bronze at Lance 96, which I'm sure we're going to come on to. Do you remember your score? 6489. Oh, yes, 6489. This is going to sound a bit self-indulgent here, but I really, I had to, because the margin was so close between myself and four plays, um, I knew it was only a matter of five points, so it, yeah, I think it was six, four, something. Yes, well, it was enough to get you on the podium. Uh, question number four, three of three. You were runner-up at Spotty, Sports Personality of the Year, in 1998 and the year 2000. Do you, some would argue it was a robbery, by the way. Do you remember who it was to? 98 was Michael Owen. Never forget it. And <laughs> obviously... Hail to Steve Redgrave was the, the victor and, and uh, the, the award winner in 2000. Yes. I have mm. to say, you had your award acceptance applause when it was in second place, Denise. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, football, you know, dominates. So what, do you, what can you say? He had an inspired year. Let's nice. leave it there, shall we? That was a BBC answer. I liked it. Uh, final question. You're four of four. This is for 100%. In 2004, you made your Strictly, you made the Strictly final. What dance got you your highest score? It's got to be the quick step. Five of five, Denise. Yes. I can even tell you the outfit. I was in silver. <laughs> Both Ian, Ian Waite and I danced in silver. He had lovely um, tails and I had a gorgeous satin silk dress um but wow that was a quick step and a half it was fierce it was fast um but yeah we got we got quite a few tens for that one i believe yes yes indeed you and colin have to say representing the athletics crew when it came to strictly but we're going to talk about your athletics career and specifically the moments that have made you what's the first moment that made denise lewis we have to go back to uh, the summer of 1988 and Whitney Houston released a song um, which it just embodied everything that I was feeling at that moment in time. So that is one moment in time. Um, it was, um, it was, I think it was launched or released for, in conjunction with those Summer Olympics. Yeah. And every line just seemed to speak to me. It seemed to speak to me about my endeavor. So I'd have been just turning 16 probably. I'd already been a junior international. I'd been competing um, for my club. I got the Olympic message, you know, 
I was already on the pathway mentally, if not physically. And so when that song released, was released, I was just like, it brought me to tears. I wanted it so badly. And you know, those lines give me one moment in time when I'm more than I thought I could be. Now, if you know my history, just coming from Wolverhampton, single parent family, I just wanted an opportunity to be more than I thought I could be. And so those words and those lyrics just resonated for me. And that was, again, an endorsement to myself that you want this, Denise. So you've got to, you've got to commit. You've got to commit and you've got to believe. We only live one life, so you'll never know what would have happened if you had a different situation. But being the product of a single parent in Wolverhampton, not having an awful lot of money, do you think that's possibly why you are where you are and that's partly as a result of what you achieved? I, I wouldn't disagree with that at all, Radzi. I think, you know, my mum displayed right from an early age a very strong work ethic um, that despite all the negativity that she was experienced now, you know, single parent, black woman in the 70s, you know, she had to ask, you know, a male counterpart, a friend, if she could even sign to get a mortgage. You could not do anything as a single black woman, you know. And, wow. you know, I was in nursery from a young age, so we were like a tag team. So she would be, you know, just working just to keep a roof over our heads, give us food, um, not knowing... I, again, she would never expose me to how financially strapped we were, but I used to hear her sobbing in bed at night time because I knew it was just through worry of being able to make ends meet. And so her drive and her tenacity, I think subconsciously must have sat with it into my DNA. Just this is how you've got to get it, get it done. This is how you've got to live to... To, if you want something, you've got to work hard to get it. There's no other way. Does it hinder you at all wanting to pay back? Because I'm sat here in Wolverhampton, the same house I grew up in, in Wolverhampton, product of a single parent, my mum. And I think there's an expression, pressure cracks pipes, it also makes diamonds. But the thing is that when you really want it to make a diamond, to kind of pay back and say your sacrifice has been worth something, I've done this because of you, it also, it can limit you because you almost want it too much. Was, was that ever a thing versus being able to compete freely? No, I, I always wanted to make my mum feel proud of me. Um, I think the payback, I think, I'd like to think most children have an element of that anyway, that your parents have gifted you life and, you know, they've, they've made sacrifices along the way. So mine was just very much... I want you to be proud of the only child that you have born, you know, the only child that, that has been given to you. Um, and so I didn't feel it was a hindrance because ultimately you turn that, that drive into something that you own. And that was very much for me, um, personal best. It comes back to what can I do? How can I improve? If not every day, each year, on what I've learned athletically as a person. Can I improve and take that further? And so I never used to really beat myself up too much when things didn't go well. Um, okay. And as you said, I was, no, I was on no one's radar as a junior really. Um, 
but I knew I was making inroads, but I knew something had to give and something had to change for me to wholeheartedly believe that I had the talent to get there. You know, going back to the Whitney Houston song, in the song, it kind of reminds America, it's really kind of meant for America, mm. about what they've done in LA. So you see Carl Lewis, you see Flo Jo, you see, I think, Greg Louganis, you see the baseball team celebrating and you think, wow, I want a piece of that. But I guess for yourself, there would have been, Linford was competing in 88, Daley Thompson was there in 84, getting double gold, 84 and 88 as well. Did you get to meet any of these people as a young athlete that you could look up to and hopefully replicate? Um, I got to meet Daley as a junior athlete. Um, and obviously, you know, I was, I was going to actually bring some of my sort of sticker books so you could see my collection of the athletes that I had. And Daley was one of them, obviously Seb, uh, Steve Cram, um, Heather Oaks, I had Heather Oaks on my sticker board. So I had a lot of British athletes that I looked up to. Sonia Lanneman, who was from, you know, uh, the Midlands, Birmingham girl, but I trained and saw her on my track, you know, in Wolverhampton, sorry. And um, I met Daley Thompson at a combined events competition in Stoke. And I think that must have been just... I think it was for his comeback. He was trying to get to um, 92, the 92 Olympics. Mm. And so it was somewhere between 90 and 91. And I saw him in the stands and, you know, everyone starts shaking, you know, he's in the stands, he's there. And um, I remember sitting in like one of the rows, maybe 10 rows in front of him in the stadium. And I started laughing at something and it coincided with, one of the pole vaulters, I think either the pole snapping or something. And I remember him hearing my laugh and then shouting down something that wasn't very nice to me, really, as a young child. Usually like vicious, vicious something he called me. And I looked up and it was like, Daley spoke to me. I don't care what he said. And since that time, I'd like to call Daly a friend, you know, um, it's been amazing that I can sit, you know, not shoulder to his big shoulder um, as someone that I used to look up to, respected, and, you know, I could call on if I really needed him. And I have to say, people wouldn't know this, that people do exactly the same to yourself. They now look to you to do exactly the same job. But talking about Daly, talking about Linford, the thing I love to know about athletes is their numbers in the gym. And the way you ran, the way you jumped, it wasn't necessarily the product of grace. It was no. the product of force. So what were your numbers like in the gym? Uh, you mean beast mode? Is that what Correct. you mean? Correct. <laughs> beast mode. Um, I'm naturally strong. Yeah, I am. Um, well, I, could, I could clean 97 and a half kg. Um, hand clean, yeah, beast. Is that, is that with wrist straps? <laughs> uh, for me, for me, yeah, I had to use wrist straps. I've got little piddly little wrists. Um, what else can I remember? Incline press because I didn't do bench press. I think I did 75 kg on incline. One. Okay, yeah, okay. I don't even remember my snatch, but it was, it was pretty decent. Pretty decent because I first met you in we spoke about the track at Aldersley. Yes. In the oldest stadium gym, it was when you were having your comeback, talking about dailies, I think it was around 0203, and I'm arriving in the gym, it's a small gym, I looked to the left, and there was this woman in Lycra, 
focused doing jump squats and you were you had more on the bar than the guys that were just normally squatting and I thought that's Denise Lewis and I thought I have to say something so I basically floated around in the area until I thought you'd finished I went over to you and you were actually walking to the bar again I thought, no I've got it all wrong and um <laughs> and I said are you gonna go for the next Olympics and you said that's what I'm here for uh, and I thought <laughs> and I thought she's gonna do it everything about you was so brutally focused and yeah so that was i'll never i'll never forget that meeting you in the gym and you safe to say you were in beast mode then yeah i mean i i never used to like weights in my um sort of oh, right. didn't really like it because as a woman you just think i don't want bulging muscles but i grew to love doing weights and realized that it was an essential component to to what I did you know it went along with the running sessions um what I was doing nutritionally I had to get better stronger in in the gym and um yeah I managed to train smartly one thing gym also helps with is avoiding injuries and that's I suppose touching on another moment that made you which is what happened to you in in 89 yeah 89 four Again, so you can imagine I'm charged up, you know, fully fired and emotionally and ready. Uh, 89 was the um, start of the, I think it was either the World's or European Juniors year, so I was hoping to make it to that. And I went on a Junior International for long jump in Italy and sustained a really horrific knee injury whilst long jumping, just kind of scooted across the board. The board was very shiny. There had been some injuries in the men's competition and no one thought to maybe change the board or anything. And so I came, became victim of a horrible injury, which kept me out for close to 12 months. Wow. And during that time, the journey back to the UK was painful. I had to undergo surgery um, on the uh, lateral release on the ligament, cleaning out all the knee um, the swelling was just unbelievable, you know, it was just like triple the size of my normal knee. Um, and it was decided at that point during the rehabilitation that let's try not to load that knee. Um, and so I started to learn how to, to long jump off the other leg. Oh, no, high jump, sorry, it was high jump at that time. I was high jumping off the right side, so take off, um, sorry, off the left side take off with the, the right foot yep. but because of the injury I had to learn to take off on the left foot which is like asking Andy Murray to play with his left hand is in that's that is a challenge it was a challenge um and I also wondered at that point whether my career was going to be over before it really began um emotionally I was pretty fed up pretty fed up but I, the, it was the moment when I was told that in order to get the best physiotherapy I had to travel from Wolverhampton to Birmingham now my mom didn't drive at the time I was still too young to drive didn't have a car couldn't afford it and so I had to take the train a bus from my home into Wolverhampton hobble on crutches all the way uh, down to the train station on the train and then literally up the length of Corporation Street in Birmingham to get to the hospital, which is where I was having my physiotherapy. 
only because I'd been told that the best rehabilitation opportunities were in Birmingham at the time. I had blisters on my hands from the pressure of, of the crutches. Wow. And it was during those journeys, a couple of times a week to get to rehab, that I thought, this is character building. You know, you are prepared to do this. Um, you're not looking for the easy way out. I'm sure I could have found a physio or someone in Wolverhampton, but I wanted the best opportunity to get well again and the best advice. And so I was prepared to make that journey. So it's that the mindset that was established in those formative years when you're asking yourself questions about who you are, how much do you want it, what are you prepared to do in order to get it, that I was getting these affirmations about my, my own mindset and my drive. And um, I'm proud of those, those sort of challenges, obstacles that tested me because I think they really did hold me in good stead later on in my career when you know, you're up against it and you are under real, real pressure and how you're gonna respond in those moments. Did you, how long did it take you to trust the knee that when you put force through it, it's not gonna, whether that even be javelin or long jump or even running? It, it took a while and I think anyone who's been injured, you know, had something happen to them where they can't move in the way they used to. Um, you have to overcome the mental balance of that. When I put my foot down, the whole thing is gonna collapse. Um, I had to train with a knee brace for, for months, for months. And slowly but surely, the jogging, the building up, the draining of the knee, trying to, you know, and even then it wasn't very sophisticated, the, the knowledge, um, you know, we have moved on leaps and bounds of what we're able to do. But even then it was trying to methodically do the things that I could do to help myself. And um, yeah, relearning my takeoff and right. um, it, it did take a while and it took a, a good good little while i'm trying to think i was then back in order to be selected for the 91 um european junior championships which you mentioned so yeah it took me about 18 months to get back into feeling like an athlete again and then between being fifth in the european juniors to then commonwealth games 1994, the next moment that made you? I've, I picked these three because there is literally an order to the mentality and the feeling. There's the inspiration, there's the disappointment, there's the opportunity. And the 1994 Commonwealth Games were a real opportunity for me to, it's almost like I wanted to, I was annoyed with myself at the same time. It's like, this is the moment you're, you're coming into your 20s give me something, give me a sign. Yeah. Give me a sign that it's all worth it. You know, um, we had a very successful world championships in 93. A couple of my peers, my really close girlfriends competed in that, those championships. Britain were really successful. I just wanted a sign that I was, I belonged. And the 1994 um, Commonwealth Games gave me that opportunity, having been an outsider to maybe get a bronze, going into that championships and having the most inspired second day. Long jump, really good, solid. They call it the freaky javelin that catapulted me from, you know, 
third place into gold position ahead of the favourite Jane Fleming at the time. Reigning champion as well at that point, and Australian. Reigning champion, yeah. <clears throat> Commonwealth record holder at the time. And in one throw, my whole life turned upside down, you know. Wow. And I always tell athletes, you have to be prepared to win. You know, you have to see yourself winning. And I hadn't had any of that um, coaching mentally to understand that concept of being prepared to win. I was absolutely terrified. I was terrified. I didn't want to be in that position. I was scared because I thought if I fail to have been so close to lose yes. it, how terrifying is that? I vomited. I just didn't want to go out and run. And it was all hinging on, you know, the worst event for me, which is the 800 meters. And I had to, I had to raise my game. And you mentioned the long jump, Jane, yeah. who was essentially the favorite going into that and the home girl. That was her specialism. So, yes. so she underperforms, you overperform, and now it's down to the 800 meters, which we know you're going to be swimming in lactic for the yes. entire experience. Yes. And she's, you know, an established and, and competent 800 meter runner. So it seemed that it was going to play into her hands. But I'm having this dual emotion of, I, d I don't want, I don't know what winning feels like. I don't know what it looks like. That isn't me, perhaps. And, but I'm so close. I don't want to fail. I don't want to fail. And that, again, obviously, essentially was the overriding emotion. I don't want to fail being so close. And so I hung on for dear life in that 800 metres and by the skin of my teeth. Came out with a new personal best. Yes. Sorry, personal best to, to um, secure the gold and victory. And that was like the moment. And what does that do to you as an athlete? To get a personal best at the biggest stage on, in your career at that point, to win when on paper you shouldn't have won, what does it do? It was, as I said, it was the affirmation I needed, that feeling of you're on the right path. Your choices have been absolute and correct to this point. And it changed my perception of who I thought I was. Um, it's, for me, mentally unlocked that potential that I dreamt about, thought about, and now I could really try and tap into more of, of the athlete that I wanted to become. It gave me a license to believe, and that I think was really important in that stage of my career, um, turning 21 and heading into what was 96, the 96 Olympics. And then it was teaching me when I got home, obviously, from Victoria, managing the press. I mean, everyone was going on about how, who is this person alongside Colin Jackson, who had won for Wales, Linford and Sally that had won for, for England. You know, who is this, you know, young person that we've never even really heard of? And so it was dealing with all that, the pride that my club, Birchwald Harriers, had, the region just were all on board. And that was how it was going to be for the next, you know, six years. That, that support and that expectation, um, I was now not, not going to be anonymous anymore. And you mentioned in 94, don't lose. Did it ever turn into win rather than avoiding losing, if that makes sense? You know, it's never going to be a straight trajectory to, to success. And so, you know, after that point, 
I knew that I had to change that mentality from not believing or the fear of failure. Um, that's when I started to adopt, you know, um, sports psychology, went to see someone right. to really enhance um, the feelings that, you know, I, I, I just had about myself, you know, that uncertainty, but recognizing that the mind, the way the, the, the mind plays such a huge part in success. And so you have to educate that and you've got to nurture it. You've got to massage it and you've got to teach it the right habits. And so that was my starting point of that self-belief and that changing the losing mentality to how do you win? What does that look like? What does that feel like? Are you ready for it? Right. When I started to take that into my performances. So going into 96, you get bronze. What was your, what was your expectation and aim for yourself going into that Olympics? Well, I, again, set a new British record, Commonwealth record. Um, I, I thought I was the business, you know. And it was like, I'm ready. I'm ready to take on the world now, you know. Um, and so when things weren't going particularly well during those Olympics, first day was horrible, absolutely horrible. Second day didn't even start with any, any sort of positivity. You know, the long jump was a disaster for someone who was quite a competent long jumper. Um, I had to really dig deep and retrain myself that it's not over in heptathlon until you've run that last event. And so that's, again, the mindset of I'm not going down like this. I'm fighting. I've got to turn this negative feeling and experience thus far for your first Olympics. You know, you've got all that emotion of I'm at the Olympics. It's just supposed to happen, isn't it? <laughs> no, it doesn't just happen. You've got to prepare for it to happen and the experiences, the noise, the being part of one team, all of those things, managing, um, sharing with, you know, another eight women in the house, all of those emotions. Um, you don't learn unless you've, you're there. And as I said, it was important for me to be able to turn that championships around and actually get the only medal from anyone in the, the team, female team, you know, the only bronze medal at the time. Wow. Only medal. Yeah. Look how far we've come. Team GB have come, really. It's quite well, extraordinary. It's because of that Olympic Games that UK Sport was founded. And we kind of take for granted lottery funding and we just think that all the facilities, like Aldersley Stadium that we see now, have always been there and they weren't, as you knew. Yeah, no, they weren't there. You know, all the sessions I did were outside, come rain, come shine, come snow. And um, even still for a long time after that, you know, it was always outside facilities because there was still no real indoor, high-pack, high-performance centres. Um, you know, even coming up to Sydney, you know, that still was just the infancy of all of that. Can I ask you about the world champs? In 97, 99, yeah. you get silver medals in both. Yeah. How do you assess those performances? Do you see them as close but no cigar? Do you see them as, I'm very happy with, I achieved as I should have? Because when you look at some of your GOTSIS performances, if they'd been replicated in those champs, you'd have been sniffing a gold medal. Yeah. Um, again, the body, timing, um, injuries, you know, I, we, we haven't got time to get into the, the, the pathways of the injuries that come at the 
most inconvenient time for me. And that was, I think, my limiting factor at major championships. So at times, relying on the physical, um, I, I just couldn't do that. I had to then really change and make sure my mind was strong in order to cope with the loss of work that, I'd, I, that, that had happened and occurred into the championships. But do I see... Charles, my coach, Charles Van Commene, changed my attitude and my mindset, especially in 97, because I was really happy with silver. You know, okay. it was a step up from the bronze. Yes. It's going in the right direction. Um, I, again, was only one of the few medalists, female medalists at those championships in athletics. And so it was all good until he reminded me that you actually didn't win the silver. You lost the gold. Wow. Wow. And I was like, He's the only person to have yeah, the, 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 the cheek or but actually the fortitude yeah. and the mindset to tell me that. And I really took that on board that no, I shouldn't be celebrating because I was able to win in 97. I was able to win in 99. And so it is what it is. You know, on the day I was beaten by two phenomenal athletes, but I just didn't do enough when it when it, it mattered, and they raised their game. Both of them absolutely raised their game. Just before we talk about what happens in Sydney, I've got to ask: When was your euphoria moment when you're competing? For some people in the head, it'll be just crossing the finish line after the 800 is done. For some, it'll be a personal best. For some, it'll be a particular event or a particular moment in a particular event. When was your moment that you thought, "This is what I do it for"? There have been a couple of moments like that, and I think it comes off the back of the training block, um, something that you weren't sure you could do. So, Seville, those world championships, I was ready to win, really. And I did a personal best in the high jump. Eunice Barber from France jumped higher. Right. I threw 16 metres in the shot put, which is... Pretty good going for that event. It's That's an understatement. That's a, even, <laughs> even now, now, virtually everyone would take that. And I, that was my moment. It was like, yes, you know, it's that pushing the boundaries to get the absolute last bit of juice out of your, your limbs, your physical understanding of a particular event. And I got everything out of the shot put. Possibly could have got a bit more out of the, the high jump. But, you know, that moment when I threw 16 metres for me was just euphoric. It really was. I, I couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe it. And when I think about all of my moments of sport that I look back and remember just vividly, one is you getting gold in Sydney. It was, that was an Olympics for me that meant so much. Seeing Kathy Freeman light the torch, seeing Michael Johnson win again, seeing Steve Redgrave do the business. I remember I was in my room watching, at, I don't know what time it was in the morning. What was that experience like for you, even just going into it? So well documented about the going into it, um, again, the injuries, but it's the turn of the millennium, um, you know, it felt like, a, a, you know, it was my time. It was now or never. I, I really yeah. felt that. It was now or never. All the stuff that had gone before, I just thought, you know what? No matter what's happened to me, I've got to make this count. And 
yeah, you know, you saw Cathy uh, Freeman lights light the flame and, you know, challenge anyone to not feel something at that moment. Yeah. It was so momentous, you know, it was just huge. Um, and so you knew you felt you were part of something special at those Olympics. Um, so to win there, um, it was just everything. You know, it was just everything. That validation that I needed about myself, my journey, um, the injuries, the overcoming, that overcoming mentality. You can get through it. You can get by. You can make it happen. You can make a difference. You can learn a lot about yourself. All came into one. All came into one in those that championships. Because I Where had was no in the stadium. My mom was in the stadium at every championships. You know, she was my, my you know, like my uh, little Bunsen burner light. You know, she's always there, lit and secure in the knowledge that you know, no matter what happened, my mom would still love me and she was not going to judge me either way. Either way. And that was very, very comforting. But she was there in Sydney. She cried like a baby. <laughs> um, and so it was nice to be able to share that moment with her, um, you know, trackside. Um, and, you know, she didn't say much. She just sobbed. But I could feel, feel everything, what she, she was going through. You know, just her daughter had, had done it. But in the context of anyone's child to win anything, they'd be prized, to win an Olympic medal, incredible olympic gold off the charts but the context of how you were born mm. very little money you mentioned black woman family challenges to see that girl who ultimately caused i imagine family issues to then have that name in lights that national anthem being played to the world to be decorated in a coming I mean, have you ever spoken to her about that? Funny, I, you're probably putting me on the spot now. I don't know whether I've spoken to her directly about how it made her feel. Um, my mum's a very private, quiet person. And so <laughs> there is probably some um, negatives to her, the, the focus that put her into as well. Sharp focus you know, amongst her peers and in her community and in the workplace, almost like, you know, pride, but not always wanting to be at the centre of that. Um, but I know she, she understood what it meant to us as a, as, a, as a unit. You know, it changed our lives. It changed what I could do for her, where I could take her. And even in the years before, you know, she would not have seen the world if it wasn't for my participation in athletics. You know, she came from Jamaica to the UK as a young girl. Um, you know, she only went back when I was, was nine, you know, so that was already you know, 10, more than 10 years that she hadn't been in the land that she loved so much. And she would never have seen the places in Europe. I would, I think, I think, because she's someone who is very humble. She works and she just stays in her own little lane. Um, and so I extended my hand 
and she took my hand and she has she traveled around the world with me wherever I went as much as I could take her it was what I thought spoke volumes was there was an Australian guy that interviews you afterwards and he asked the age-old question in sport what's next and with normally what you do is you'd make a joke you'd say oh I'm gonna have a nice hot bath I'm gonna have a rest I'm gonna go on holiday you said another one that was not even an hour after you'd won. No, in fact, you just done the national, you had national anthem, the medal ceremony, and then you said, another one. It came to Athens and obviously didn't work out mm. how you wanted it to. Do you regret going to Athens? How, how do you look back at that experience? What you need to know is that at the top of my training programs, I had literally written two sentences every single training program for over four years um i have two gold medals in me and i'm going to get them regardless of what my other competitors do and that was my thinking i believed as i told you that transition i believed i was good enough what you don't count account for is how your body is going to be and so I was always mentally ready. I was always prepared to get to Athens, even though everything around me was saying, uh-uh, nah, give it up, give it up. I just wouldn't listen, you know, wouldn't listen to my body, body. didn't actually listen to my doctor when he said I needed surgery after sort of 2001. After oh. Sydney, actually, he said, you know, you need to spend time getting yourself right. Your foot is not good come and have the surgery. I was like, oh, I can't be bothered. I'm so injured. I don't want to face another whole year of rehabilitation again. But I knew my left foot was, was damaged. It was really, really damaged. And so those are the things I regret if you put me on the spot. Um, the latter, the decision-making that could have given me longer in the sport that I love so much. And I think that coupled with twisted my ankle just before you know just at the start of the year 2004 going on a run i was in the forest went over everything was just going against me i shouldn't have gone so i mentioned to you meeting you for the first time in the gym and you'd have met loads of people so i wouldn't expect you to remember but you acted the bit i didn't include was something that you said and it stayed with me to this day and it's a part of my mantra so i said to you um are you going to go to athens and you said, you actually didn't say yes. What you actually said was, I don't know, but I'm here to find out. I have to find out. And I remember thinking, wow. And it was because I presumed Denise Lewis, she will be going to the Olympics. The same way Daley Thompson will be at 92 and he'll win gold again. You don't know the human story. Mm -hmm. And so with my trajectory into TV, it was always, I can deal with answers I don't want to hear, I can't deal with questions I don't have the answers to. And that mindset actually started kind of speaking to you in that gym, just hearing that, because I thought, if Denise Lewis doesn't know, but she wants to find out regardless, and then it didn't happen. I remember watching Athens thinking, I don't think you'll be that disappointed in the sense that this is what happened, you found out. It wasn't mm. the ideal, but at mm -hmm. least you know. Yeah, there is some of that, but 
I, I, I'll be honest with you. I sit and think about the things that didn't go so well more than I think about the victories. I don't know why I, it's, it's maybe it's normal for competitors, but you know, there's bits that I think I could just rewrite that little bit of it. I feel satisfied. Yeah. Denise, it has been an absolute <laughs> pleasure. There is so much we could talk about. When you've had such a long, prestigious career, we could have spoken about the punditry, we've spoken about uh, Strictly, we could have spoken about all the things that you do on TV as well. But thank you so much for your time, because your most important role is you are a mother and you've got to get back to your children. So thank you so much for your time. and Thank you for being so honest as well. Not at all, Razzy. Love talking to you. Well, that there was Denise Lewis, one of the defining athletes of our Olympic track and field success. And total disclosure, I am a Wolverhampton boy. I am extremely biased because I think Denise is great. A true one of a kind from a single parent teenage mother to an Olympic champion. One of the last legends of athletics, in my opinion. Well, if you enjoyed that, please rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. And you want to make sure that you join us next week on The Moments That Made Me in association with the University of Hull for more Olympic insight and defining moments. You are absolutely not want to miss this one because we'll be joined by one of the best ever GB Olympians in his field. And that field is gymnastics. He is a three times world champion, a two times Olympic champion, Max Whitlock. Whatever you do, don't miss it.